0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 130 for the second half of April 2015. Today, I'm bringing you an interview about scientific conferences and pseudoscience with Dr. Dave Draper. Dave Draper is the manager of the Astro Materials Research Office at NASA Johnson Space Center, or JSC, in Houston, Texas. His scientific background is in experimental simulation of the formation of planetary interiors and how they generate the most igneous, or volcanic, materials that make up the bulk of planetary sample collections. He is also a current member of the Planetary Science Subcommittee of the NASA Advisory Council. And for the past several years, he's chaired the program committee for the largest annual planetary science conference in the U.S., if not the world, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference that takes place every March in Houston, Texas. So welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to talk to you. Again.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So for listeners, this is the third time that we're attempting to record. Disc crash is another thing. So let's get right to it. Uh, many listeners... Have probably attended some sort of conference in the past, like a Skeptics Convention, or maybe a comic conference, like the gigantic Comic Con in Atlanta, Georgia, or maybe even a Disney conference, Howard and Leah. But very few have attended a science conference. And I was wondering if you could give some some of the basic big differences between a science conference and some of these other kinds of conferences or
2: conventions. Sure thing. Uh, I have never actually had the uh, opportunity to attend uh, any of those kinds of conferences yet. Uh, I do hope to get out to a science fiction con of some kind next time there's one nearby, because I'd love to just have the experience at least once. But for uh, most science conferences, the general intent is to provide uh, a venue at which uh, scientists present their work and attend presentations of their colleagues' work, uh, exchanging ideas uh, and comments on on each other's stuff, uh, team meetings, all sorts of side things going on, because when you have uh, the opportunity to get a lot of us in one place for a week's time, we take advantage of that. Everyone has limited travel money and so forth, so we want to make the most of every opportunity uh, to come together. Now, at our conference... Typically, uh, about three-quarters of those attending the conference are going to give some form of presentation, either a poster or a verbal presentation, uh, and roughly one-third of attendees end up giving uh, a verbal presentation. Our intent in a meeting of this type uh, and this is probably how we differ most from those large conventions is to make this as highly interactive and experience as we can manage. We want the exchange of ideas, and so uh, w- we have a very different ratio of speakers to attendees than would be the case in some of these large conventions
0: yeah, I think that um, at something like comic con it uh, even there's going to be one in Denver in a month or so uh, in may. Um, I think that the attendance rate is something like 50,000, but the number of participants actually giving talks is closer to the hundreds, which uh, you're talking about a few percentage versus 75%. And also I can just be from experience at this last LPSC. uh, I think I had something like 14 side meetings, including one with you, as well as uh, just randomly people grabbing me in the hallway and saying, hey, I like your talk. And we talked about X, Y, Z. And yeah, so it's – it's very useful. In fact, uh, I think a lot of us put in our grants that you know we want to go to LPSC because not only do we get to convey our results, but we also can then collaborate with colleagues that might be uh, co-wives or collaborators on the grants.
2: That's absolutely true. And it's uh, uh, something that is a really fundamental part of the scientific process. This This regular coming together of the community for this kind of exchange of ideas is absolutely crucial for the progress of science. And it's one of the problems that our community has faced in recent years with, you know, budget cutbacks and a variety of other things. In particular, um, for us who are federal government employees, a recent scandal which erupted when the General Services Administration uh, saw fit to go spend nearly a million dollars on a boondoggle in Las Vegas, violating the spirit and letter of every ethics law you can imagine. And they do what they were doing. It was crazy. And we are all now paying the price for that egregious transgression uh, with increased scrutiny and clampdowns on how much we are allowed to travel. And science is really uh, suffering from this because they are trying to restrict how many meetings we go to and so forth. And this is just bad for the field. So thankfully this is starting to relax some now that mm-hmm. the, uh, the crisis has passed more or less. But uh, it is a, a point that your listeners really should take away from this uh, that these kinds of conferences are are the bread and butter of how science gets done.
0: Yeah, and I think a key word that you used was exchange of ideas. This isn't something where uh, where, where we go generally to be talked to. Correct. It's more we listen to people who are uh, very very doing very closely related research to what we're doing, and then talk with them, and uh, then give our own talks about the same thing. And this exchange of ideas, in fact. Uh, I think a, a great example was uh, there was a session where Pete Schultz, who's this person who's been in the field for decades, uh, he runs the Ames Vertical Research Gun and the NASA Ames Vertical Research Gun, where you you create impact craters and impact events. And he gave a talk about how uh, the orientation of this gigantic basin on the Moon, the South Pole Aiken Basin, might be forty five degrees off from what other people say. And then there were talks in the afternoon session because he went in the morning, that then used some of his slides because they were like, well, I had to rewrite my talk after watching Pete's because I yes. had to redo some of this.
2: That's an advance that we enjoy now in this digital age when everyone is all connected and can email things back and forth, text the slide right there in the session while the while the uh, talk is going on, in fact. That, that was never, not the case before when we all worked with – uh, you know, hard copy 35 millimeter slides that were in a carousel someplace. Nothing was going to change between, you know, one day and the next. But that you're absolutely right, Stuart. And that is a, a, the key thing here, that it is an exchange. It's not uh, received wisdom from on high. And, and I know for some of your listeners, this is a, a point of some interest. And um, the, the way science is done is in back and forth, iteratively, Everything has to build on what's come before. Uh, yes, there are big breakthroughs and eureka moments, but the the progress of science is a steady, careful, and uh, thorough examination of things, and the exchange of ideas is absolutely at the heart of how science is done.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, so with that said, uh, going to something completely different, your role specifically uh, for the last several years has been to uh, chair the program committee for LPSC. What is the initial step for someone to try to present at LPSC and to be part of that process? What's kind of the minimum requirement?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. Before I answer that in detail, I just want to give a, a little bit of background on how the conference uh, uh, is done. Well, sure. This is this is run by a collaboration between ourselves and the Astro Materials Research and Exploration Science Division at JSC, and the Lunar and Planetary Institute, which is an arm of University's Space Research Association. Uh, Doctors Eileen Stansberry uh, from JSC and Steve Mackwell from LPI are the co-conveners of the meeting, and I work very closely with them all year round on planning for the meeting and setting its policies uh, and all sorts of things. I've we'll been get involved- some of those later. We sure will. Um, I have been involved as a program committee member for nearly 15 years and uh, became the chair of the program committee in 2011. Now, during that time that I've been involved, there have been huge changes in the mechanics of how we go about handling the abstracts. Uh, Back in the early days, uh, there were fewer than half the number we get now. We're up to almost 2,000 abstracts a meeting on a routine basis. Um, But not not to the philosophy of the meeting. The meeting has always been about presenting the very best science in our field. Uh, And the way we do this uh, functionally is LPSC has an abstract deadline in the first week of January every year. And there is no formal requirement to submit an abstract. All you have to do is follow the instructions and submit a two-page PDF by the deadline, and it will go into the pile with all the rest and be duly considered by the program committee. Um, all of the vetting of the, of the abstracts and the organization and so forth takes place uh, with the program committee about a week after abstracts are due. And our instructions on the, the website for submission of these things are very simple, and we provide a template file for authors to use uh, that makes formatting very easy. So there, there is no bar to clear uh, uh, to submit an abstract to LPSC uh, if, if you know how to use a computer.
0: Well, that might block some people, but okay. Uh, So when you and the rest of the program committee, I guess uh, the week after LPSC Abstracts are due, when you guys meet, guys and women, uh, meet in your gold-plated ivory tower, what do you actually do, and how do you go about figuring out who can present?
2: To do this, uh, I assemble the program committee each year in the months preceding uh, Abstract Deadline. And uh, this committee consists of planetary scientists whose expertise covers uh, the, the great breadth uh, of our field. Uh, they're all regular attendees of the meeting year by year, uh, so they know what makes for good sessions. They've been doing this a while. Uh, however, I, make, I go out of my way to uh, include younger scientists on the program committee as well as uh, some of our more experienced hands. Because I think it's really important for uh, the next generation to become as involved as possible in these sorts of things as early in their careers as possible. I was the lucky recipient of that kind of treatment, and it, it worked for me very well. And I'm looking to, uh, to give some of that back any chance I get.
0: Also, younger people are generally more willing to do it because the old people are like, I've done my service
2: and on, and honestly, that's a perfectly fair thing to say because, you know, it, it happens all the time. As people get more senior, they they have more to people. More people are depending on them, them for more things. And sometimes it's a better use of their time to stay home and do what they're doing instead of come on out to Houston for a d- few days. And and let's face it, because now that everything is, is digital and computerized and everything else, younger folks are, just have a natural, they grew up. You, I'm sure you grew up with all this stuff now, and, and it's it's second nature to you, and That helps a lot. I mean, uh, and it's no knock on those folks who, uh, you know, who, like myself, who come from a previous generation and may not have that experience. Um, And without exception, though, the people that come onto this committee of whatever stripe are uniformly conscientious, hardworking and dedicated. And I can't say enough about how much I appreciate the hard work that they do. Okay. okay. So now, uh, now in terms of what, uh, how we actually go about this, though, yeah. that we bring the community, we bring this uh, committee together. I subdivide them into teams uh, specific to the various topics. Uh, for example, the two uh, the two general areas on which we receive the most abstracts every year are things to do with lunar science and things to do with Martian science. And so those there are sub teams of. Three, four, five people, depending on on uh, you know what's happening uh, from one year to the next, for those larger topics, and then for some of the ones that get only thirty or forty or fifty abstracts submitted, usually one person can handle those. Uh, by themselves, now, one of the huge mechanical improvements in recent years is the introduction of an online application a tool that makes managing the large number of abstracts much much easier than before and I really I want to make a specific shout out here to uh, a gentleman named Michael Dell at the LPI. He deserves major credit for writing and continuously improving and updating. Sometimes in real time during the program committee meeting, the, this tool, in collaboration with all the other great LPI staff and our program committee folks. Now, before this, everything was done in hard copy, uh, printed out abstracts, uh, handwritten pieces of paper, and it was very laborious, took a lot longer. And it was much more difficult to gain a familiarity with all of the things that had been submitted. It was just, it's just impossible for any one person to read 1,500 abstracts in a few days. With the tool, it just cuts the time needed in half, makes makes it much more easy to uh, for committee members to search the database of of the, all of the abstracts really quickly and look for emerging themes, compelling scientific themes. And I, uh, again, it's uh, it's no coincidence that it is the uh, introduction of this tool that that, that has caused uh, you know the rate of reviews we've been getting for the past five years and the quality of our science program. Now and this is the real answer to your question at last Stuart um, Yay. <laughs> the, yeah, the overriding instruction to the committee is to compile the most thematically compelling scientific sessions possible from what's been submitted um, The group uses you know this tool and they get to uh, they get to work immediately after the abstract deadline uh, at their home institutions um, uh, with access to the database from wherever they are and start reading things and familiarizing themselves with their topic area seeing what has been submitted, and then going out into the wider abstract database and looking for themes that might cross-cut disciplines or planetary bodies or, or what have you. And so then uh, as, as they arrive, the sub-teams talk together, start moving abstracts around. Hey, this would really go well with your, with your six abstracts on this subject. A lot of horse trading. But the overriding instruction is before we even worry about what is verbal and what is poster is we want the most compelling uh Uh, thematic scientific sessions and then having having then identified which are the most compelling those are the things that are going to get the oral sessions compared to the poster sessions and so we don't we don't make those decisions until we understand what those themes are.
0: And people can also request an oral versus a poster, so um... it,
2: indeed indeed, and and I'm sure the next question is, how do we decide? Uh, oh, yeah, which, yeah, okay. which gets a talk and which gets a poster?
0: Yes, all so right let me so... just, let me just,
2: let's go straight <laughs> into that.:
0: It's not like uh, I sent you the questions ahead of time.
2: No, not at all. These are the things that anyone would want to ask <laughs> um, but you're right, authors do specify their preference for oral versus poster when they submit. Um, and not everyone wants an oral presentation. There's many, myself, I have many times chosen a poster because of the nature of what it is I'm presenting. For example, when I'm presenting something that is puzzling me, that is making me scratch my head, and like, I don't understand why I'm finding this in my experiments, I almost always do a poster because I want the opportunity to stand there with my colleagues and explain to them what I tried and the details of, of why this is uh, giving me problems. Wait, this is stuff that a verbal audience never wants to hear. There's way too much detail. But I need to talk to these folks because maybe they can under, you know, understand something that I don't. And this is true of all of us.
0: Right. So posters are usually a lot better for progress report type things.
2: So. And, well, and sometimes even for major results, it just depends on – it really depends. If everything is case by case. There is no one-size-fits-all. Now I will say that you know, historically, most people uh, have attached greater uh, prestige to getting a verbal presentation as opposed to a poster, and uh, you know I can understand where that comes from. You're up there in front of a room full of people, and that's all great. But the fact of the matter is, um, you know, with all of the uh, uh, papers we have to get presented every year, two thirds of, uh, of every meeting's uh, presentations are going to be posters, just because we can only accommodate about 500 odd. Uh, presentations during a week and the number of rooms that we run so you know it's not there's no stigma uh there should be no stigma uh, attached with uh, giving a poster versus a talk it's just simple math
0: and now, just so that, yeah if yeah, so i can ahead. interrupt real quick yep. uh just so that people know the talks are typically you're standing up they're usually four or five parallel sessions so you're standing up uh at a podium And you have 10 minutes to give a talk. You have about three minutes for questions and then two minutes for speaker change, very, very roughly. Um, And the, the moderators are tasked with making sure that you stay on time. But you really only have time for maybe two or three questions, depending on how long you speak. Whereas with a poster, there are about 600 on Tuesday and about 600 on Thursday. You're in a gigantic room. And you stand there for three hours or so while people come by and read and then maybe ask you questions. So the poster session, even though uh, a lot of us do tend to consider the posters as lesser than a talk, the poster session actually really does give you a lot more interaction.
2: It sure does. And, it, and it's really the primary venue at which this all-important exchange of ideas that we've talked about uh, takes place. So uh, that is this attitude is changing because uh, of this very fact that um, – So much productive stuff happens at the poster sessions, and and people are, you know, it's like any culture change. It just takes time. Now, again, here we always decide, though, based on what makes for most compelling sessions, whether it's a string of posters in a row or a series of talks. Uh, A strong consideration, though, is that we do tend to reserve oral presentations for the presentation of science results. Compared to things like, for example, a future mission concept or an instrument or spacecraft design uh, presentation or a discussion of space policy, those are the kinds of things that we uh, we we definitely put in posters almost almost always because the the thing that we're trying to do here at LPSC is present science results, so that's what gets pride of place.
0: Okay, so like, for example, I submitted two abstracts this past year, and one of them was the first-year results of a three-year project on mapping the craters on many of Saturn's moons. Clearly, because I had no actual science stuff yet because it was the first year of a three-year project, it made sense for that to go to a poster, whereas another uh, abstract that I submitted was about my lunar chronology work, so uh, redoing the old time scale for the moon, and that was meant to be sort of an introduction to a session about how young various surfaces are on the moon. So that made sense to be a talk, not only because it was a big major result, but also because it was sort of meant to introduce a bunch of other talks. Absolutely.
2: And and, uh, we very uh, carefully consider those things when uh, deciding what goes where. Um, you know, when once these threads that I've been mentioning, these themes emerge, uh, it, we then rely on the professional judgment of our of our uh, panelists on the program committee to uh, decide how to best sequence those things. And as I say, for for years now our attendees tell us after the meeting in our surveys, you know, how successful our committee has been in doing just that. Yes.
0: And then you scheduled me opposite Dawn
2: series. That's yeah. Like well, s- s- sorry. Somebody, I was there. Somebody had to, uh, somebody has to do that. That's that's the thing. Whenever there's a really hot uh, session that everybody wants to go see, well, the people that are get scheduled opposite that are, are going to suffer, but you know, they have to go opposite somebody. And uh, the process of deconflicting. Sessions is a big part of what we do at the program committee one once we have identified what sessions are going to be orals Then we have a we have a process we refer to as storyboarding where we put them all up and just and say okay well, we can't have these going at the same time can't have those going at the same time and Rearrange things until we minimize and that's the key word minimize the conflicts between uh, oral sessions we can never ever eliminate conflicts why our planetary science field is diverse. Um, it is imperative for us as planetary scientists to bring a multidisciplinary uh, approach, which means we're interested in lots of different things. We, we want to see the dawn at series session, and we also want to see the lunar uh, chronology on a surface session, and we also want to see the cosmic dust session. It's just we're interested in too many things, and frankly, I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, well, you and I can talk offline about uh, where my talks are going next year. (laughs) Well,
2: well, uh, as we have discussed, Stuart, you will be on the program committee next year. Yes. yes. You'll you'll Uh, have uh, something to say about it.
0: Yes. Uh, So (laughs) with with that in mind, how do you decide what kind of abstracts are rejected? So we talked about uh, how you, you put stuff into categories and how you decide talk versus poster. But how do you decide if someone goes to that minimum effort and submits something, how do you decide if it's not good enough and should be rejected in some way?
2: Well, every year we do end up rejecting between, oh, I don't know, 10 and 20 abstracts of the nearly 2,000 submitted. It's rare that it's more than uh, more than a couple dozen.
0: So it sounds like it's like a half percent to 1%. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's, that's very true. Now, usually these, these are very straightforward. Um, often uh, it's the case where the abstract is a perfectly fine abstract for its field, but it just doesn't belong at LPSC. For example, it might be a material science sort of thing, or or a better suited to an astrophysics conference or something like that. Just just a mismatch. But others get rejected uh, because they're simply so poorly written and assembled; that it's just absolutely impossible to understand what the author is saying. That makes our life very easy. Um, if it's not at all clear to many educated people what the point is, we say, "Sorry, this you know this is rejected." Um, the more difficult ones arise when an author is promulgating something unconventional or or maybe unsubstantiated or poorly substantiated. However, um, one thing I do want to uh, discuss is an author's identity. You know, of course, it figures into these decisions, but there's no requirement that anyone be a Ph.D., for example. Um, for example, one of the things uh, we we strongly promote is the presentations by students who don't have a degree yet. Um, But everything begins and ends with the content of the submitted abstracts.
0: Okay, so you don't have to have those letters after your name. You don't have to be at even an academic or a nonprofit institution. It's just based on the abstract.
2: That's right. If the content is good and compelling and belongs in the session, that's all we need to know. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. As long as you are legit, as long as you are presenting real science. Now, uh, uh, with respect to the students especially, this goes back to something I've said before. We really promote... Uh, The younger generation of scientists and we start with students. Um, We've really tried hard over the years to be the most student friendly conference out there. And I think we succeed at that. They give both oral and poster presentations. They chair sessions, you know, actually moderate the discussions. They've even successfully proposed special sessions, things that topics that we identify ahead of the abstract deadline for people to submit to. Um, on the other end of the age scale, some of our attendees and participants are retired from long careers and no longer have a professional affiliation. It'll have their home address on the LPSC abstract that they submit. Now you know we're only human. Of course, an author's identity and professional association is going to figure in in a panelist's you know assessment of an abstract. I mean, that's can't we can't avoid that. Mm-hmm. But in no way do we require that every author have some form of you know approved academic, governmental, or industrial affiliation.
0: Okay, uh, so. You did say that the hard part comes when you have something that's unconventional, uh, which is it sort of gets to the topic of the podcast, uh, exposing pseudo-astronomy. Uh, so how do you deal with those kinds of things when it's, as uh, someone might say, against the mainstream? Uh, what kind of criteria do you use to evaluate it and decide whether it should be accepted or rejected? You know, If the only issue with it is that it's proposing, say, that... Uh, I don't think of something stupid, that Pluto is made of green cheese.
2: Well, the criterion we apply to LPSC abstracts is very similar to what is typically applied uh, when journal papers are reviewed, and that is that the conclusions need to be consistent with reported observations and that due consideration, you know, for the range of possible explanations needs to be apparent. This is just a basic requirement of any kind of scientific exercise. We also apply the maxim: uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, we don't undertake uh, formal external peer review of these things. Um, no conference does that. Uh, we don't have time. Mm-hmm. Um, we also expect, though, that the reported observations are in fact accurate. In other words, our first instinct is to trust our authors. Uh, and this is where things start to get subjective, of course. Right. Um, now, we absolutely don't shy away from controversy, and we never will. Um, and, in fact, it's the spirit of debate that is so healthy for uh, any scientific field, and LPSE has a long history of some very lively exchanges, let me see.
0: Oh, yes. Yes. I I brought popcorn to one that I, I expected was going to be lively a few years ago, and it was.
2: Oh, boy. There, are, there, there have been some humdingers, let me say. Now... All rejection decisions at the program committee are my responsibility. I'm the program committee chair, and I'm the one who makes the call. Uh, So if the decision is right or wrong, it's on me. But here's the actual process of how how we do this. Uh, A program committee member will bring me an abstract that has sounded their alarm bells in some way. And so uh, I ask them to have, before they come to me, have conferred with other members of the panel uh, to, you know, get a reality check. Uh, we talk it over so I understand their concern, and I read it myself, of course, and I read it closely. And what I'm looking for is that the author, even if they're suggesting an idea that sounds crazy at first, has you know laid out some line of reasoning that's consistent with the observations and that demonstrates some familiarity with the field. In other words... Uh, if it has like no references to any previous work and just tosses out some notion that you know flies in the face of basic physics like Pluto being made of green cheese, um you know that's got no place in the meeting. that's a major red flag on the other hand, if the paper demonstrates a, a very clear understanding of the nature of the problem and proposes a solution that seems very outlandish but can't be simply ruled out well that's that's a different story, and that's fair game in my opinion that's a, now. I want to make clear, I readily concede, this is a lower bar than I would apply as a reviewer of a journal article. No mm-hmm. question about it. But that's exactly the intent, because a conference is is the right place you know, for this kind of provocative work. It's, it's As we've talked about many times already today, um, it's for the developing thinking. It's for the exchange of ideas in collaboration with colleagues. And sometimes those collaborations are adversarial ones, but it's healthy for us to do this. Um, A meeting, a conference proceeding, uh, 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 what happens at a conference is never the final answer. It's never the final repository of an inquiry, typically. And and we want our conferences to be stimulating. And it's it's an impression we consistently receive in the feedback from our attendees that we have a stimulating meeting every year. So if I reject the abstract, I request the panelist uh, who brought it to me to write a short paragraph uh, summarizing the rationale for why it should be rejected, which I will then edit as needed. Um, it's always, uh, you know, sticking straight to the subject matter. There's never any ad hominem, you know, kinds of. Uh, it's strictly above board here. You know, it, uh, the the statements will typically be of the form, uh, you know, due consideration was not given to a large body of literature, which you know immediately refutes the the, um, the conclusion that you're trying to promote. Um, and then finally, the abstract is then classified within our management tool as one that's going to be rejected. We bookkeep keep this. We keep track of the text, and then that will be then uh, communicated to the author in due course.
0: Uh, do they have any recourse if they have something rejected?
2: Well, uh, now, although the rejection decisions are my sole purview, um, the formal notification comes to the authors from, as a letter, from the LPI director, Steve Mackwell, co-convenor of the meeting, and it will include this rationale from the program committee that I just uh, referred to. Now, the only recourse is just simply to object, you know, uh, to the decision or request some kind of of reconsideration. In practice, though, this has happened only rarely. Most rejectees never push back, um, and those who do, well, let's just say they cover the range of politeness levels from one end to the other. Uh, up including to any,
0: lawsuit threats. Yeah, threat up
2: to and right. including threats of lawsuits, that's right. Um, but ultimately, the decision is ours. Uh, we run the show, and we have the duty. And this is not a democracy or anything else. I mean, it's up to us to make the right decisions. So uh, we will, of course, listen to everyone's point of view, and then we'll make our decision, and we'll move forward from there.
0: And in the end, it's not a right to be able to present at a conference. It's a privilege.
2: That's exactly correct. Running a, a science conference like LPSC is a responsibility, not just a... It's not just, you know, something that's nice to do. Um, You know, we are very acutely aware of the responsibility we hold to the science community to maintain the integrity and scientific credibility of our conference.
0: With that in mind, if you accept, say, an abstract that might be a little bit against the mainstream uh, or a lot against the mainstream, but it met that minimum threshold – uh, do you tend to put any kinds of strings on that acceptance? Um, like you say, all right, you can come, but only if you do this. Uh, or um, do you take into account that it is against the mainstream when you sort of plan the narrative between the talks or the posters and, and put them in any particular place because of that? I guess special consideration at all um, because of that status of this is weird.
2: Well, once I accept an abstract, it gets treated the same as everyone else. There are no strings. There's no difference. It's either accepted or it's not. And okay. so there is, there, is no, there is no tier uh, system there. Uh, now, in the spirit, though, of promoting this active and healthy debate, this exchange of ideas uh, we keep talking about, I do, in fact, commonly recommend to panelists uh, in such cases to place the paper in such a way that the community has every opportunity to be exposed to this idea and consider it, particularly if it's controversial, especially when it's controversial. Um, Because science in general is a self-policing enterprise. We, you know, uh, if the argument is persuasive, we scientists are going to listen to it. Another quote that I love, another guideline principle that that uh, I believe it was Isaac Asimov. I don't have the exact words, but to paraphrase is, "I will consider or believe any crazy idea if you can back it up with logical reasoning and evidence." And that's kind of that's kind of where I come down as well, because uh, you know if either the argument is persuasive and we listen, or it isn't, and we will conclude that the author got it wrong, and that's science right there in a nutshell. Okay, now because this this arc of examination of a scientific idea takes time I mean it takes time for an idea to grow, develop, be presented, be considered by a community and then either it goes forward or it runs into a roadblock that takes time. So I tend not to move too precipitously in making decisions about these sorts of things and in particular it's not uncommon that a, that a, an idea, an unconventional idea has been around for a, a few years and maybe it's been promulgated by a particular person. Mm-hmm. And part of my responsibility is to allow both the fair hearing of, of these ideas, and I take that responsibility extremely seriously, um, and I've experienced this in both ways. In some cases, uh, ideas turn out to be correct, uh, even though they absolutely fly in the face of uh, what we think we know. And I'll give you a great example from recent years, and that is the, uh, the, the realization that the moon contains indigenous water in its interior. Oh, yeah. Up until, yeah. Up until uh, uh, about 2008 or so, It was dry by George. There isn't a a molecule of water in the entire moon, and anyone who says otherwise is crazy. Well, guess what? Now that we have uh, better technology and we can make far more subtle measurements than was possible in the decades since Apollo, that story is completely different. And it was, even though the amount of water in the moon is vanishingly small, it is non-zero, and that has profound cosmochemical implications. That's a great example. Uh, h- however, in most cases, that that's the rare exception. In most cases, the idea doesn't catch on because it's not, in fact, the right idea. And after a while, it's going to expire and join its kin on that mountain of discarded hypotheses, which <laughs> towers over the pile of proven ones. <laughs> um, Lovely word picture. Uh, and, you know, there have been several instances where this has occurred. And in my rejection write-up, I would say, now, you know, we gave you a fair hearing, and the community's consensus is that, you know... The, this is not going to work. This dog will not. So that, I would include that after having given them a fair shot.
0: Let's talk about a hypothetical situation then, sort of a play a play game of hypotheticals. Say you have a person who submits an abstract claiming that the moon is a hologram, and uh, this particular person provides screenshots from a video that they took, and uh, the video shows um, the surface wavering in, in sort of a line scan-like situation. Um, might be a hint as to what's actually going on. Now, this person in their abstract doesn't try to address any of the reasons why people may come up with uh, the idea that this person is wrong, like tidal forces, uh, but this person still presents their own evidence that they might really believe for why the moon is a hologram. What would you do with that kind of abstract?
2: Wait, the moon's not a hologram? Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> you can edit that out. Um, that's what, that one's easy, Stuart. That's an obvious rejection. Uh, not citing any corroborating evidence or, or, you know, comparing to the sorts of things that such a proposition would predict, uh, not taking account of competing hypotheses, that's not science. And uh, any assertion of that type that cannot be supported even by the most common knowledge, basic information to any scientist, well, that's fine as a first paragraph in an abstract. But you'd better back it up after that.
0: Okay. Uh, Let's do another one. Say you have a submission that claims that the moon is hollow. Uh, They cite Apollo seismic data and quotes where uh, I don't remember who the scientist was, but uh, they were perhaps trying to be a little bit more eloquent than they intended. But they said uh, literally that the moon rang like a bell when it was struck by, um, I think it was the Antares stage of a rocket, uh, and so they bring in um, also some theoretical stuff, uh, some mass estimates, and uh, they they have some hand-wavy reason as to why they think or how they think it might have formed hollowly, um, if that's a word. Uh, it is now. Uh, so they might say, well, I might believe that it's a spaceship, uh, like in Star Trek, but uh, it could actually also form naturally this way by this, that, or the other process. So... They have not only um, an observational argument, but they also have, uh, it might be completely wrong, but they also have sort of a theoretical argument. What would you do with that kind of abstract?
2: Yeah, sure. That one's also pretty easy because we would, again, point out the oversight of consideration of a huge body of work, uh, with exa- and we would cite the examples, the chapter and verse papers that instantly renders this idea nonsensical, and we would reject the abstract.
0: Okay. Uh, and for listeners who are interested, yes, I am still planning on doing a hollow moon episode, even though it's been three years since I said I would. Uh, so, all right, let's do a third hypothetical. Say you have a person who submits an abstract claiming that Mars was a moon of a now missing planet, and they present crater evidence of the southern hemisphere being blasted with craters from the explosion. So they're arguing that effectively Mars Mars equator was where its South Pole is and North Pole. And then they they also point to Iapetus and the brightness dichotomy and say that it was blasted, too. Like, these are the scars of what happened when this missing planet exploded. And then they point to the asteroid belt and say that it's the remnant. Now, they might say, okay, only 1% or 2% of the original planet's mass is still there because it exploded, but it's still there. Then... They so they spend most of their abstract putting that in there. But then they have a concluding paragraph that acknowledges the mainstream idea. And they they say that, well, they think that this is an exploded planet, but the mainstream idea also works, and while their exploded planet stuff can't explain everything, it can still explain a lot, and maybe the stuff that it can't explain needs to be reexamined, and maybe they're not the—they don't have enough information, enough background to explain all that stuff within their model, and so they want to just get it out there and see what people think. What would you do with that?
2: Well, you have done a really excellent job of, of of compiling what may be one of the toughest calls I could ever make. That's uh, I try. <laughs> you did very. I well. make your work more more <laughs> difficult. <laughs> Now, uh, in such a case, the first thing I would do, basically, the basic answer is I would take the review process to the next level. I wouldn't. I would uh, find out uh, some kind of expert in the details of the type of work uh, at issue. Uh, in the case of your example, it would be some kind of solar system dynamics. This kind of person, I'm guessing, um, and I would make every effort to find out just how plausible this idea is, whether it's a testable hypothesis. Another real basic requirement for anything scientific. Um, how it could be tested you know uh, whether we possess the technological ability to even test it um, or whether on the other hand there are glaring oversights uh, you know missed body of work and so forth uh, in other words I'm basically I'm just going to take it take it to a level closer to what a journal article would get than what we typically do for an abstract and in when doing that, if the strongest objection is something like, well, I just totally don't buy this, but you know it does, in fact, you know fit the uh, fit the observed data. And they did place all their you know caveats where they where they needed to. I'm pretty much forced to accept it. Um, you know, like if if instead the answer is, well, this is intriguing, and yeah, I can see why they would think this, but they missed some known circumstances not cited that clearly rules it out. That gives me the that gives me the rejection. Now, what if
0: it's a, a minor issue? So for in, in, you know to ex on the example I gave you. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say that they say that this planet, so that they go through everything. Then they have one paragraph of their two-page abstract where they say, uh, this happened 65 million years ago, and so it also caused the death of the dinosaurs on Earth, so they link it to that. But then you have a dynamicist who comes in and says, well, actually, we can look at asteroid families, and we can see that uh, just dynamically, no know, knowing how orbits evolve with time, we can trace the origin of these asteroid families back to an individual breakup point. And the ones that we can trace, uh, they have dynamical lifetimes of 300 million years. So this is clearly wrong because the asteroid belt has at least been stable for 300 million years. So it's not really a nail in the coffin of their idea, but it's something that goes against at least a part of their idea. Like it is clearly they missed this.
2: Right. That, that would be, you know, that would, again, put us in a a kind of a gray area zone because I'm sure we have all seen plenty of abstracts where the authors have missed referring to something. And so it's not our job. It's usually my work, but (laughs) (laughs) it's not our job to go in and make sure everybody's referred to everything. We'd never be able, that's an impossible task. So, you know, at some point we have to just rely on our best judgment and, uh, uh, Honestly, you know, we're we're not going to always get it right. Um, uh, you know, you know, in the case again that you just cited, that would be a, a way to reject if if the other stuff looked like that's what needed to happen. Um, on the other hand, when you start getting into that level of detail, then then you may it may be defensible to say, well, that's one way to interpret the things, but there's another way to interpret it, and that's where I, I need to rely on the expertise of the community that I draw on. But again, I want to stress the decision rests with me. If, if, um, if someone gets it wrong, it's not the fault of any of the people I consulted. It's my fault.
0: Okay. So you're almost like a NASA program officer with grants where you have a review panel, but it's in the end, it's really the program
2: officer who makes that decision. That's absolutely right. Okay. And one last thing I want to add to this is that, uh, having, uh, having, uh, done all this stuff and thus and having accepted it, because that is the premise of the question, right? You know, you did accept this. um, Now, I would also use this tactic we discussed about placing the paper so that the community would have every chance to assess, uh, you know, the the legitimacy of the idea, whether that's an oral or a poster presentation. And I would try hard to see that presentation myself. Now, that's not always possible because my top priority when I'm at the meeting is to go see all the work presented by the folks who work for me because I think that's important. And um, I have a lot of people, so (laughs) it's hard for me to get around everybody. Um, So I don't always manage to do that, but I try my best. And then uh, I I would consult with a sampling of scientists who are experts in the field at issue and ask them their views. Is this legitimate? Um, Does the idea hold water? Was the author persuasive? How was the presentation, particularly if I didn't get to see it myself? Or were they trying to do some kind of bait and switch, just get into the meeting so they could then promulgate uh, some other obviously bogus idea. I rely on the expertise and integrity of our community in these tough cases, and I am so grateful uh, for the service that uh, that folks like this provide uh, our community by giving us this kind of feedback.
0: Okay, so you uh, do do a follow-up with these particular kinds of things to see uh, what happened?
2: I sure do. I sure do. And, and this goes back to what I said a minute ago about these things take time that I don't want to move too precipitously. And so after having gone through this, you know, I, let's say the same author comes back the, the following year with a, uh, either the same or another uh, questionable submission, um, I will be on very solid ground to say, "Look, you know, you've you've said this before. We gave you a shot. Uh, we put you right there in the heart of, of your field. Everybody had a chance to look it over. I followed up with these folks and." they're not buying it and they have very specific reasons why. And I'm afraid that, you know, you haven't cleared the, uh, the bar that we need uh, in order to include this topic in, in, in the meeting. But we certainly encourage you to do anything, you know, that, that is uh, uh, amenable to our, to our conference.
0: Okay. Uh, so with that in mind, you know, that this conversation flows very well with the pre uh, scripted questions. <laughs> uh, so as a next to final question uh, for after those hypotheticals um, when you do consider those kinds of abstracts and when you consider coming back at them the ne- not coming back at them but when you consider how to respond to them for the next year are you cognizant of the idea of you're damned if you do or you're damned if you don't as in if you accept the abstract, as you said, then they may use that as an in and say, hey, I've clearly presented my work at a scientific conference to my colleagues, and therefore uh, it's, it's accepted by them. Whereas if you reject it out of hand, then they're going to say, well, clearly this is uh, an ivory tower and nobody can get into the club if you're not already a scientist. And therefore, the, you know my stuff is still valid, but they don't want to even consider it because they're all stodgy old fools.
2: Right. I am acutely cognizant of this uh, dilemma. Um, now, it's my job uh, as program committee chair to be scrupulously fair to everybody, uh, but it's also my job to preserve the credibility of our conference, uh, uh, you know, for the sake of the community. Um, as you pointed out, LPSC is the premier planetary science meeting worldwide. I believe that to be true. And that's a weighty responsibility. It's something that uh, I take extremely seriously. And and you asked me this earlier in the interview. I absolutely love the LPSC. I love being able to help run it. It's a privilege, and I'm very proud uh, of uh, the work we do here. And I'm very fiercely protective of LPSC. I can't stress that uh, enough. Now, with all that said, though, you know I honestly don't believe a pseudoscientist is really going to gain any lasting credibility by having presented at any science conference and except with other pseudoscientists.
0: Right. Well, that's the thing, is that they can go to uh, regular radio shows as opposed to a science podcast and say, well, um, I've presented my stuff at this, that, and the other conference. And people who don't know how these things work are going to assume, oh, well, of course, there was peer review. And of course, if you got in and presented, then, of course, people think that their stuff is valid. So it's more of a perception issue to non-scientists.
2: Yeah, uh, this is true. And, and uh, you know, I, I understand that, that, that point. I guess my, my belief is that the community of people who would, who would buy that argument is small, Okay. And not particularly influential. Now, hang on, I got a caveat on that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, as I keep mentioning here, you know, science is this self policing kind of deal. And, you know, it's going to uncover whether an idea is flawed or not, even if it takes years or even decades. It's got the truth will out, as the saying goes. Um, the danger is, and I think this is where you're going, the danger is that such a person could influence a policymaker's decision, for example, in some way with unfounded claims of this type. Now, that's not much of a risk in planetary science, you know, but it sure could be in other arenas, and I totally recognize that uh, danger, and I'm just glad I'm not someone who has to make those kinds of decisions.
0: Yeah, well, I, I often talk on the podcast about how, uh, now granted, I'll, I'll just finished up a three-part series on the Comet hale stuff and the suicides of the Heaven's Gate cult, uh, but In general, astronomy and planetary science is very, very low on the what's the harm with pseudoscience uh, scale. Uh, On the other hand, something like medicine, uh, if this were um, a medical conference and then they were able to go to their local representative and get something passed by saying, hey, I have credibility because I presented at this medical conference, that's more of an issue
2: you bet and if i were uh, organizing a conference of that type i would no doubt i would have a different policy here for something that actually affects the public good now th- to my way of thinking the pursuit of fundamental basic science does promote the common good mm-hmm. it is something that that we as a society should be doing and quite frankly should be doing a whole lot more of um, yes. however however that's that is the sort of you know a rising tide floats all boats kind of kind of concept it's not a you know, the fact that I am doing experiments on lunar interior is not going to affect the daily life of, of anybody, you know, except the people who are working with me. However, the fact that I can go and give a lecture to a room full of non-scientists and explain to them how we know how the moon came to be and watch the wonder light up in their eyes as they under, as, as they finally look up at the sky and say, Wow. You know, I've always loved looking at the moon, but now I know why I love it so much. That is something that our planetary science field does have an immediate and direct impact on someone's life just by making them understand and appreciate uh, what they're seeing better.
0: I agree. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, we've reached the roughly 50-minute mark. So, uh, and that's all the questions that I, I had. I was wondering if there was anything else related to this g- general conference stuff, uh, whether or not it deals with pseudoscience. or um, Is there anything else that you think the listeners
2: should know? Yeah, I have. I'd just like to close with, with uh, a couple of comments here. The first thing, I, sure. I really do want, want to acknowledge the great partnership I have with my co-conveners, Eileen and Steve. Uh, it's great working with them. And I really, really want to recognize dedication and the hard work of both uh, all the staff at the LPI, who handle all the logistics for running LPSC, and the legions of scientists who have served on our program committees. They've done such a great job. And as I mentioned before, it's one of the greatest joys of my professional life uh, to help run this meeting. It's enormously fulfilling, if exhausting. Um, and it's possible only because of all these amazing efforts of all these folks. No one ever sees all these things that they do. There really are unsung heroes. So I want to make sure that gets across. And I really also want to leave your audience with, with the, the thing about the buck stops here with me. If, um, if, if the wrong decision is made about accepting an abstract, it's, it's my fault. It's my responsibility. And if I do make the wrong call, um, about all I can say to my colleagues is I looked at it. I tried my hardest to make the right decision. I did what I thought was right at the time, and if I got it wrong, all I can say is I'll try my best to do better next time.
0: And, well, we're all human. So I, I think people can appreciate that. And I think people will also appreciate you coming on the show, and I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about um, about these issues and, and stuff that I don't think that people tend to really even think about, but it really does form an important part of the scientific process. It's exchange of ideas and where do you draw that line between science and pseudoscience and how do you decide um, where and when and how someone is going to be able to present. And I think that as a take-home message, I think that people should come away with this realizing that it's really not a set of ivory gates through which none, none but the people who Uh, play the game and talk the talk and walk the walk can enter. It's really very, very open. And you just have to be able to meet a few minimum requirements. Like if you are thinking that you have a new idea that goes against a lot of previously established science, you just have to back it up. And you have to acknowledge that there are other views.
2: Yep, and you have to do your homework. Because, you know, uh, uh, the way science is done is uh, a very... Uh, clear-eyed examination of the available evidence and you need to have your ducks in a row um, if you're going to try to make a case whether it's an incremental advance on science or whether it is a truly paradigm-shifting revolutionary idea and as we've said a couple times the more controversial or paradigm-shifting it may be, the greater the onus is on the proposer of that idea uh, to back it up
0: All right. I think that's a great way to end it. So thank you, Dave, for coming on.
2: Thank you, Stuart. It's been great talking to you. I had a great time.
0: Thanks again to Dave Draper for joining us for over an hour when one includes computer crashes and other things, and while he was fighting a cold. The evening after I recorded this interview with Dr. Draper, Richard C. Hoagland appeared on Coast to Coast AM, interviewed by Richard Sirrett. Richard was ostensibly on to talk about nuclear weapons on Mars, which was because of the following.
1: About a week and a half ago, a plasma physicist, plasma physicist, what is that? We'll find out. Anyway, he presented a controversial theory at the 46th Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Houston, Texas. Dr. John Brandenburg says the evidence is incontrovertible. An ancient Mars civilization was wiped out by a nuclear bomb. Now, at the conference, he didn't go into a lot of detail about the, uh, the alien races per se, He pointed to a number of artifacts on the surface that he says are remnants of an intelligent society. But here's where it gets interesting. He warned we should all be fearful of an attack from this supposedly hostile alien race that wiped out these same Martians. He went on to explain that a thin layer of radioactive substances, including uranium, thorium, and radioactive potassium, on the surface of the red planet, provide evidence for his theory. And nuclear isotopes in the atmosphere apparently resemble hydrogen bomb tests, which he says occurred in two places on Mars, Sidonia Mensa and Galaxius Chaos. He says we have now found evidence of the nuclear melt glass trinitite formed uh, on Earth at the site of nuclear weapon airbursts. They were found at both sides of the hypothesized explosions, and all this was presented at the aforementioned conference. It's because of this kind of thing
0: that I disagree with Dr. Draper at least a little bit. Dave made the comment during the interview that he doesn't think that the fringe crowd that would be impressed by hearing that a certain person presented at a scientific conference is large enough to really matter, especially for something like planetary science. Like it or not, in its heyday, Coast to Coast AM drew in the tens of millions of listeners per night, although I've now heard that it's closer to hundreds of thousands of listeners on any given night. That's still hundreds of thousands of listeners on any given night, and Coast to Coast AM is still said to be the largest late-night talk show in the world. And because someone presented their work at LPSC, that was used by the host as a badge of credibility. It was inferred, assumed, and implied to mean that the views are being taken at least somewhat seriously by the broader scientific community, which they're not. With that in mind, I might be at least a little bit hypersensitive to the issue. In particular with Dr. Brandenburg, I addressed him a couple times on this podcast, but you should probably head over to episode 86 as the best discussion of that. I also ended up writing a blog post about Dr. Brandenburg's well, presentation at LPSC. I've linked to it in the show notes, and I do highly recommend that you read it. Suffice to say, for purposes of this discussion in this episode, Dr. Brandenburg did not make his case very well, and several of the things that Richard Sirrett said that he did, he actually didn't do. So with that said, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to again thank Dave for joining us, especially because he was fighting a cold, And the next episode is going to be a little bit of a grab bag of topics. It's not going to be a clip show per se, but it's going to get into a lot of feedback that I've been postponing, especially a discussion about uh, funding in science, sort of a follow-up to the discussion with Dr. Pamela Gay in episode 126. And I'm going to do a little bit of a discussion on whether or not the last lunar eclipse that we had about a month ago in April of 2015 was actually a full lunar eclipse and, of course, the implications with the blood moon stuff. I'm also going to be doing the bit of homage to Leonard Nimoy. So this is your last chance uh, throughout the month of April to send in any clips or any inspirational bits of pieces uh, related to Leonard Nimoy and how he affected your life. That does wrap up this topic for the 130th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell family members, and also tell, well... Random people that you'll probably never meet in real life, but you interact with online, like gaming forums, or bodybuilding forums, or other nerd type forums, or stuff like that. Not that being a nerd is bad, but you know. anyway.